what you have in these periods of progress, or when it started, you actually started really getting an underlying shared commitment by those with power and influence towards development. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Why have some countries experienced durable economic progress while other countries remain left behind? This basic question has vexed development economists for decades. And for decades, economists have tried to reverse engineer one country's economic success story to discover a kind of blueprint that could be applied elsewhere. My guest today, Stefan Durkan, was one of those economists when he had an insight that forever changed his approach to the field of development economics. What development success stories all have in common, he realized, is that elites within the country risked their own status in society for broad-based economic growth. He explains this insight in his new book, Gambling on Development why some countries win and others lose. Stefan Durkan is professor of economic policy at the University of Oxford and a former senior official in the UK government, including serving as the senior economist of the United Kingdom's premier overseas development agency, DFID. He draws on both his academic expertise and his background as a government economist to put forth a compelling narrative in his new book. Now, here is my conversation with Stefan Durkan, author of the new book, Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. So the premise of your book is that there's no single right way to do development. There's no specific blueprint or discrete policy steps that just because it worked in one place, it will necessarily work elsewhere. Can you explain or describe how your background as both an academic and as a top government official has informed that view? Yeah, so look, I've been an academic for 30 years, mainly working on Africa also quite a bit in Asia, working on poverty, coming in all kinds of settings. But in the last 10 years, I've been closely involved with the UK aid administration, so the Department for International Development, DFID, as we tend to refer to it, as a chief economist, and more recently as an advisor to foreign secretaries and the heads of also the department in the past. So one of the things is that in a function like that, in a senior policy function, you try to actually say, well, can I now capture really well what is the recipe for development? You know, what do I now give? And you spend a lot of time in all these different places. You also hear, of course, a lot of people talking about it. And I'm old enough to experience the period, say, of the Washington Consensus, where there seemed to have been a very clear recipe of 
minimal state, market liberalization, and other kind of sets of policies that we're going to do. These days, we live in an age where everybody looks at China and they seem to have their own flatback version of development of let the state lead, do special economic zones, invest a lot in infrastructure, and it will all happen. But now, if you look at just across the experience of countries, it's really hard to actually see what the common element is in terms of the actual policies and their recipes. So people that say, look, this is how you will be doing it, I think overstating just the importance of every country faces its own context in economic opportunities, also in politics and in institutional development. And so actually successful countries, they don't have a single recipe here. They haven't simply followed something and that's success and, and they didn't, others didn't, and that's a failure. It's actually much less to do with that underlying recipe, I would say. And definitely traveling around as a policy official having to try to make sense of different places and advise them definitely taught me, I can't simply say do like that country and it will all go well because reality on the ground is just so diverse and so heterogeneous. So if there's no specific recipe that could be replicated across different countries, but there is what you identify still common features that countries which have successfully undergone economic transformations, have in common. And this is what you call the development bargain. Can you explain what you mean by that term, the development bargain? Maybe the good starting point is actually just to think about, you know, in every country in the world, you know, there will be groups of people with, relatively speaking, more power and more influence in in the way the countries run, the way businesses run, the direction of the country. The elites. The elites, indeed. I call these the elites. You know, it's actually helpful to look at every state you meet that seems to be kind of functioning in its own way, I'm not saying perfectly, that there is something like an elite bargain, a kind of an implicit deal between these different players about the direction of where the country is going. Now, you could have a lot of different elite bargains. You know, I can travel around and I go into sub-Saharan Africa and I can, well, find some countries and there I say, you know, name a few, even like Democratic Republic of Congo or Nigeria, where, you know, you start looking at it and the elite bargain is hardly about growth and development. It probably is a bit about distributive politics trying to distribute amongst those who control the natural resources the most important parts of the rents. You can go to other places where politics is strongly based, say, on favoring a particular ethnic group and where the state becomes an instrument of rewarding those people who supported you to come to power, possibly from an ethnic group or something else, you know, clientelism, as people refer to it, or something like that. So, you have all these features. And and I would say, actually, a lot of countries have a lot of these features and they all come together. But the common element that I would say, if you start looking at more successful countries, not success necessarily in South Korea or Singapore terms, but just starting to grow from takeoff, getting some process of development that is broadly inclusive, you actually start noticing that the elite bargain definitely values growth and development broadly defined as part of its elite bargain. And so if you go and look at very diverse countries that have made progress in recent times, and in the book I talk about China, obviously, but I also talk about Indonesia, Bangladesh, for me, stands out, go all the way, say, into Ethiopia until recently that the conflict undermined it again, but definitely for almost two decades, Ghana, countries that 
are very different. And the ones I've named, they are very different in all their features. What you have in these periods of progress, or when it started, you actually started really getting an underlying shared commitment by those with power and influence towards development. And that's, I think, is just a necessary condition. You know, you can do anything else in terms of giving them suggestion of what to do. If they don't fundamentally want to be successful in growth and development and work at it, it will just not succeed. And it's not just words, you know, it's not somehow, oh, I have a plan here and I'm going to develop, I have a vision for 2050 or whatever. It's it's actually the hard work of trying to achieve it. So in any country, you're going to have a bargain amongst elites that keeps the power structures in place. But what you're saying is that in countries that have experienced economic growth and sustained economic growth going from poor countries to less poor societies, the bargain revolves around implementing policies to encourage that kind of broad-based growth. That's exactly right. You know, because it's a question sometimes as development professionals, we forgot to ask, and I definitely had us working in the policy environment in the UK. In our age relationships, we often took for granted that the partners we were dealing with, or they also wanted development. You know, they may have all signed up for the SDGs or whatever, but actually there is a huge difference between the online commitment that we observed, and definitely when I was quite involved in the DRC, in Democratic Republic of Congo, under Kabila time, you know, in terms of saying, look, do they really want development or actually is this another game in town? And it's that difference between an underlying commitment to achieve this. Now, again, I want to just emphasize, this is not just about words because it's not easy to keep that together and to be successful in it. So it requires real credible politics and political deals that are made between elite players to keep peace and stability. It also requires something of the state, is to actually be, and I call this in the book, a self-aware state, a state that somehow understands what it can and can't do, so that it's not just the simple thing or the state should just lead. You know, there's plenty of countries that embarked on actually trying to get growth and development quite successfully, where they realized that actually the state wasn't that strong and they needed other players, including, you know, investors, private sector, NGOs, and so on, to play a role, like in Bangladesh or in Indonesia. These were not strong states. And it's important that there are mechanisms in such environments in place that they keep on learning, that they actually not simply stick to some kind of ideological narrative, this is how we're going to develop and then see it, but actually it doesn't work. No, they need to be willing to learn. So it's these characteristics of an underlying credible politics, a self-aware state, and somehow principles of learning embedded in the system that actually tends to then get these very diverse countries to actually make considerable progress over time. And conversely, a great plan without those other elements is sure to fail. You have an anecdote in your book about a meeting you had in the DRC in which you met top-notch economists who had a great plan on paper, but everyone knew that this was all fiction, that the politics were not able to sustain the implementation of you know, this wonderfully drawn-up plan. Yes, it's indeed. So there was the prime minister making a speech and, and the commitment was made that in a couple of decades, they would be a tiger, a tiger economy, 
comparing themselves to Singapore and, and other countries in Southeast Asia and in East Asia, and actually just listening then to the officials explaining all the kind of wonderful plans. And I remember walking out of the meeting thinking, you know, it was like a three-hour meeting, brilliant plans, you know, World Bank would have been proud of it. As an academic, I would have given them high marks and all the ideas. They have clearly incorporated the evidence. And there was just no credibility to it. There was just no credibility that would implement it. In fact, the day before, I had visited the ministry in charge of the budget, and this was 11 months in the fiscal year. Well, they hadn't agreed the budget yet of that fiscal year. So, you know, how can a government that doesn't even bother getting its own basic organization of getting a budget and giving instructions to different ministries to spend something, how can they actually credibly want to do this? And of course, the underlying story was... You know, Prime Minister Ponyo and President Kabila, that was not what they were really interested in. They were interested in controlling the mining contracts and getting the rents and, and, and the profits from it. And look, it's really hard then to actually deal with them and to interact with them. But you just have to learn to acknowledge there are places where the underlying elite bargain, those who control power, well, they just don't want development. So you've mentioned Bangladesh a couple of times. I'd love to have you kind of lift the hood a little bit and explain to me, to listeners, how this elite bargain in support of development worked or was launched and nurtured in Bangladesh, which has experienced just tremendous economic growth over the last two decades. Can you explain what happened in Bangladesh? What does that bargain look like? And allow me to briefly give it as a contrast to the kind of what listeners may well be more familiar with, with what's been happening, say, in Southeast Asia or even in China, you know, where you get this model of where the state ended up leading, where there was a clear commitment by the state to actually get development and and some kind of, you know, the idea of a fairly strong state achieving it. Now, it's that contrast that makes Bangladesh really interesting. And so the history of Bangladesh You know, if you go back to when it won its war of independence in the early 1970s, it was almost immediately hit with a severe famine. But also the new government that had come into power and the new elite that had emerged started very nationalistic policies. And of course, a bit of the spirit of the time, very strong state run, a socialist state that we're going to build fairly quickly in the 1970s. And actually, Both in political stability and in economic stability, the whole country basically crumbled in the 1970s. And yes, there was a coup, military rule came into power and and so on and so on. It leads on actually to the 1980s where, you know, you get a sense and nobody can really date it exactly. But out of this kind of chaos and this real almost failure of this early period of independence, somehow an underlying implicit commitment seemed to have emerged amongst the elite that they were going to do something different. And in fact, they started, the government started enacting, somehow recognizing that the state that was being built up was just very weak, you know, and arguably was actually quite dysfunctional. It definitely, jobs were, had only been created for supporters of those of the politicians who were in power. The capability was really very low in the state. But actually, somehow or another, the state started enacting and recognizing that probably they shouldn't be the ones doing it. And in fact, it created space, in this case, for a newly emerging sector, RMG, that had through coincidences, so ready-made garments, the textile sectors, as we know, Bangladesh is uh, 95% of its exports today are still garments. 
it had emerged from a, almost a failed investment from South Korea, but some local entrepreneurs had learned to trade a bit from the South Koreans and actually started building it up. And the state, rather than this kind of thing that we often observed in different kinds of settings where you know a successful industry needs to get connected to the state with all kinds of issues that may come about of it, no, actually that sector was allowed to emerge and grow and get really big. And so you got actually a real engine of growth for exports emerging there that was not controlled by the state. The state didn't stop it, helped it a little bit, but didn't overdo this. And at the same time, and I think very interesting for a more development point of view, the state learned to recognize that also in social sectors, it clearly wasn't strong enough. And what we had is actually local NGOs that had emerged, and many people will know Grameen, but actually Bragg is probably more relevant here. Both of them had emerged in the 1970s on the back of the famine. But actually, when it came to Bragg, that became, and it is now, the largest NGO in the world. But actually, the main purpose at the time was that it actually started delivering services for very poor people, working with international organizations, NGOs as well, collaborating, trying out new things and so on. So you've got actually to the poorest, a lot of services were delivered by NGOs. And why I find that so important, I can't think of a country in the world that would have allowed an NGO to become as big and as powerful as BRAC became. And actually, the same thing is that within its own initial thinking, it stepped away both in the economy a little bit and indeed in social sector provision. BRAC, it stands for the Bangladesh Rural Action Committee. About 10 years ago, I was in Bangladesh on a reporting trip looking at issues around global health and development. And it was just striking to me to see how on top of things the BRAC people were versus the government people. The BRAC people were just far more fluent in their expertise than the government people were. And it's interesting to hear from you, that sort of was a deliberate choice that was made by the government at some point a few decades ago to let this NGO kind of take the lead on these anti-poverty and social welfare initiatives. Yes. And what's really interesting, it was actually not simply a choice of the government. It was actually, I would almost say, a choice by the elite. In fact, if we start looking at who were the leaders of these organizations? Actually, they were all actually pretty well connected to political class as well, but they really didn't try to do politics. They said, no, that's what we're going to do. So the BRAC leadership you know, was allowed within the elite to operate and doing it. And it was almost a bit like a respect of they have their role to play within that elite bargain because the state can't quite deliver it. So it's an interesting thing. It's hard to call it a deliberate choice. There's no moment that BRAC was given the license to provide these things. It was allowed to emerge. And that I think that's really a part of thinking about, you know, an underlying shared commitment. And that shared commitment was really, we want to actually both be successful as a growing economy, which then garments allowed it to be do. We also wanted to be fairly equitable society. It wanted to be inclusive. And somehow or another, it was encouraged. And, and even now, and I totally agree with you, I was actually a few weeks ago back in Bangladesh, and I actually, as a researcher, do work with them on their Ultracore program. So they have a specific targeted intervention that has been well published, including in top science journals and their effectiveness to deal with ultra poverty kind of things. You know, the underlying respect that they have within society and the way they can operate very well knowing, you know, they're not politicians. They're not going to do politics in itself. They're very much a service provider. 
but they are so effective. And the people that work there, I totally agree with you, is this impressive bunch of people, highly motivated young people often that do an amazing job. And it just works. It is a little bit like a state within the state. And I'm always worried about sometimes these things, but it is cohesive within the state. So it's not like a separate block that is somehow funded from outside and doesn't have a link with society. No, no, it is actually integrated within society and it operates incredibly effectively. So I'm a very big fan of BRAC as well in that respect. So you frame this process in which elites cohere around a development bargain as a gamble. Your book is titled Gambling on Development, suggesting that this is a very risky proposition. What are the risks inherent in taking this gamble? This is an excellent question. It's actually at the core of this whole issue. It's on the one hand, one should understand the gamble very carefully. On the other hand, I would actually say it makes it even more amazing that so many countries seem to have been doing it in recent times, which gives me a lot of hope. But the gamble itself is actually the following. You know, if you're a member of the elite, the most attractive position is the status quo. You totally understand that. You know, by its nature, you have the power, you have the influence, and actually running the country in the way you have it is the safest way to do it. Because we know that when change starts happening, when development starts happening, when economic growth starts happening, new groups will emerge. New elites will emerge in the business community. Middle classes may emerge. People that were poor will actually become more mobile because that's by the nature of development. So you get process of change. And process of change are a challenge to the elite. They may actually make your position as an elite more tenuous. So that's actually important to recognize. So in that sense, it's a gamble on development. Now, sometimes it's a gamble that you can actually quite understand. If you think of it, go back to the Bangladesh example, it was definitely a chaotic country in the 1970s with conflict, with the famine, with military rule, all these kind of things. A lot of the kind of foundations of the country that didn't quite even exist, but they couldn't quite emerge. There was an element of definitely conflictual situation. Now, if you're part of an elite, and in this case, in a young country, you should actually be quite worried as well when you can keep your position. So you may also see it in your self-interest to gain legitimacy for the positions that you have in society, that you actually try to deliver development and growth for the broader population. If I now take a step to another geography, to China, I think that's kind of what happened in China in the late 1970s. You know, we like to think of it in China as like this deliberate plant economy that somehow built up this capitalist, semi-capitalist, state capitalist economy that it had. But we also should recognize the 1970s were very turbulent times in China. You know, we had had a cultural revolution. Mao's death had occurred. The Gang of Four wanted to have a similar kind of ideology-based Communist Party of China totally controlling the country in everything, including the economy. But actually, there were many people in the party, including what in the end became the reformers like Deng Xiaoping, that said, look, we are risking here that actually China will be lost to us. In fact, I'm old enough to remember as a teenager hearing stories about China may well cease to exist. It may well implode. The gamble that Deng Xiaoping and the Communist Party of China took is to actually say, well, if we want to stay in power, we better deliver for the population as well. We'll deliver growth, food security, and indeed poverty reduction as a way of keeping legitimacy in society. So an elite 
may do this partly coming out of conflict, partly for legitimacy as well. So it can become a calculated gamble as well, but definitely still risky, which is the part that gives me hope, is that actually we see quite a lot of countries finding that and wanting to start doing this, you know, finding pride in doing this, even an elite that actually probably undermines this position. And in recent decades, we know that in general, extreme poverty has gone down quite dramatically from about 2 billion extreme poor in the world by 1990 to something like maybe 700 million extreme poor, if we use this definition of the World Bank and of the SDG1. You know, that's a considerable decline. And behind it is deliberate action and agency of states, including of their elites, not to choose for the status quo, but to choose progress through growth and indeed inclusive development. I'm glad you brought up China because it seems that right now we are experiencing this somewhat unique moment in which development is being pursued as part of a geopolitical strategy by China to a large extent through its Belt and Road Initiative, but by other players as well, by the United States and to perhaps a smaller extent by Russia. To what extent does the fact that you're seeing sort of geopolitics reflected in development projects undermine or strengthen or in some way influence the kinds of risks that elites in these developing countries are required to take in order to achieve that development bargain? What's this relationship between these massive infrastructure investments by China and other investments by key players like the United States and your thesis on the development bargain? I mean, it creates, of course, further risks for development. And that's that's an important point to clock. It doesn't make it necessarily easier. It's helpful for a moment to go back to another age when geopolitics played a big role in the way countries were engaging in the developing world. So basically the 1970s and definitely the 1980s. And, you know, the 1980s were a really difficult time, I think, for development. For lots of parts of the world, uh, definitely for Africa, it's often referred to as one of the lost decades and so on. And I think the fact that there was a Cold War going on and the way that then policies were pursued from all sides, more from an ideological point of view than from a development point of view, made it, of course, much harder. So it is a real risk for development. And we'll probably end up looking at the decades between 2000 and somewhere towards 2020, these two decades, as really exceptional periods for development because geopolitics was less important. You know, there was more alignment to actually do it. So that's an important thing. So, of course, if I'm a country and I'm big elite players in a country, it makes it harder because these kind of geopolitics forces us to choose and not just to make choices purely based on what are the best things for me for growth and development. There's other things that are put in our way. So I am concerned about that. And it definitely will make development harder. And the more we can, in principle, take some of these geopolitical pressures, and I would definitely say, you know, as someone who definitely comes from the West, and, you know, I'm co-supporting of democracy and and the kind of values that it embodies, you know, we should just make sure that in the support we give, we minimize this. But there is another side to it, actually, that makes it quite interesting. In this period, in the 1980s, I was mentioning Bangladesh. Actually, you know, Bangladesh, that was the beginning of its progress. You know, this period where actually the geopolitics was turning against it, 
Bangladesh took advantage of shifting geopolitics, including with trade agreements and so on that took a certain form and so on. Actually, Bangladesh took advantage of opportunities that came into the garment sector in exports to the US. There will be similar opportunities that present themselves to certain countries, just as many countries in Southeast Asia and in Asia took advantage of the 1980s to start their process of faster growth. And there will be opportunities now as well. And it is an upon, you know, whether it's the US or China, to be able to respond constructively to it. And what I mean by these opportunities is that most of the buyers of a lot of manufactured goods, well, they're still living in the richer Western countries. So there is an opportunity for countries that haven't been able to break into global value chains and take advantage of trade opportunities. And I'm thinking here of Africa. There's actually an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that you know, Western countries are not that interested anymore in, or would like to, for political reasons, not to buy as much in China anymore. So it, it does create still opportunities. Is there like a specific opportunity that you see emerging from that, a country or a manufacturing sector that you see emerging from the potential desire for Western governments to want to like decouple their value chains from China? Actually, they're quite a lot. If you think of it, you know, what used to be first Britain and then the US, China is now the workshop of the world. You know, this is where manufacturing takes place in a broad range of goods. Okay, so let me give an example that I had when in Bangladesh. You know, Bangladesh actually needs to find a way of diversifying its economy and its export base. We know that for a long time, 95% of export comes from garments. That's not a healthy position. But we were talking to an electronics firm that was trying to do largely import substitution at the moment, trying to make vacuum cleaners, but actually a broad range of electronics. They were telling us that some electronics firms from chip manufacturers to just more basic electronics manufacturers or also companies like Samsung and so on, they were looking to diversify their supply chain out of China into maybe other countries. So that's an opportunity. So I definitely could see for Bangladesh a real opportunity to actually do electronics, you know, and there was clearly an interest in it. I think that's for quite a lot of, of the things that is there. Look, it was a process that was likely to happen at some point within globalization because Chinese labor was getting more expensive and actually other countries were getting more technological capabilities. I think that gets accelerated. I do think, say, if I think of African countries, this is now becoming the moment to also getting some of the garment sectors that may need to move out of China. And some of the Chinese firms may well find it in their interest to actually settle into Africa. So it is actually a broad set of it. And maybe at another factor, coming out of COVID, we've all learned that diversified value change is quite important. So actually, not just purely relying on China, even if there was better geopolitics, we would have wanted to actually diversify as well. If I'm a buyer in the US or a buyer in Britain or in Europe, I would have wanted to diversify the places where I buy from. So actually, there are opportunities. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. There's all kinds of other things, of course, that come with it. But where at the moment there is a lot of gloom and doom about a lot of things, I'm actually quite optimistic. And I actually think that, again, there will be a couple of countries here and there, and I'm not going to name them because I don't know them, where actually there will be a configuration of people in elite, people in business and in the state that actually saying, look, rather than just capturing rents for the short term or just doing input substitution, there's actually now an opportunity for us to actually say, well, 
we could actually be maybe in some sectors begin to break through. And it will take time, but to take some gambles on development within their own economy. And I think, and I'm definitely hopeful, given on recent experience of the last few decades, there will be a few, just as Bangladesh in the 1980s, I remember so Henry Kissinger's, one of the aides to Henry Kissinger's called Bangladesh a basket case. You know, it has surprised us. There are certain countries that may look like basket cases now that may well be these surprises. And actually, the geopolitics, it's not going to help them, but it may actually create new opportunities. And maybe some of them really can get incentivized to do quite amazing things. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for your time. Your book is great. It really is a great explanation and exploration of just trends that I've noticed as a reporter covering this field for so long. And it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.